Hello everyone, welcome back to the Sabbath School From Home podcast. Very glad that you can join us and uh, very glad for our other con- uh, contributors here with us as we continue our journey through Genesis. Ah, that's my cue. Uh, g'day everybody, good to be here, Ken. And I'm Clancy, I've been on this podcast a couple of times before and I thought it was time to pop back in and say hello. Welcome Clancy. Yeah, wonderful. Now, uh, we have made some uh, very concerted but largely unsuccessful efforts to move forwards through the book of Genesis. We, we keep on moving backwards, Clancy, to, to the earlier chapters um, and reflecting on how they sort of set the story up. Uh, we're going to make uh, another sort of detour in a slightly different direction this week. And um, it was something that we sort of arrived at last week and didn't have time to discuss. Ken... You suggested to us that we we look at two instances from Abraham's life. Uh, yes, although they're very similar. Now, the first was in Genesis 12, verses 10 and following to the end. And the second was Genesis 20 uh, from verse 1 uh, through, well, it depends how far you want to go, I suppose, but um, uh, through to, say, well, chapter 20. Well, we've referred to the chapter 12 incident before, I think, but I, I don't think we've read it. Well, I, I think if we're going to do a comparison, then it needs a read. Okay. Um, I might kick off then in verse 10 of chapter 12. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram well. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Uh, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Right, well, let's jump straight to chapter 20 then and read that while that's fresh in our minds. Clancy, do you want to start us off from uh, the start of chapter 20? Abraham journeyed from there to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was sojourning in Gerar, Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, said, had Sarah brought to him. But God said to Abimelech in a dream by night, You are to die because of the woman that you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her. He said, O Lord, will you slay people even though though they are innocent? He himself said to me, She is my sister. And she also said, He is my brother. When I did this, my heart was blameless and my hands were clean. And God said to him in the dream, I knew that you did this with a blameless heart, and so I kept you from sinning against me. That was why I did not let you touch her. Therefore, restore the man's wife, since he is a prophet. He will intercede for you to save your life. If you fail to restore her, know that you shall die, you and all that are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. 
Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offence against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so they could have children again, for the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. That's so interesting because the next thing that happens in chapter 21 is God takes note of Sarah and she becomes pregnant. It's this weird sort of continuation on, oh, God opened all of their wombs. Oh, and he remembered he'd promised to give Sarah a child. Like it's a it's a very interesting lead in. Not that we're talking about that, but it's a good juxtaposition. Well, I was wondering if when it says that God said to Bimlech, you shall surely die. Is, is that death to be in the form of having no children? Mm. So like is this the end of his... your uh, legacy? Yeah. Uh, this is where yeah. your um, lineage ends. Yeah. Uh, potentially. I, I, ju- I just, uh, I enjoy these sort of uh, comparisons to look at what's different. And, and Clancy, you said, well, the very next thing that happens is that uh, Isaac is conceived. Um, I, I think it's, interesting to look and see what comes before and what comes after these stories as well as the comparisons of the particular details of them. Um, so, I mean, immediately before Abram in Egypt, uh, he's, um, uh, he's received God's promise or the, the, the call from God and he's built this altar uh, to the Lord. Um, and then there was a famine and he went down to Egypt, so he travelled. And chapter 20, he's moved on from where he was with, with Lot and his daughters, I think. Um, yes, yeah, so any... the preceding chapter has Lot, God rescuing Lot from Sodom. Yes. So, and then, and then Abraham moves on there. So this, 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 is, this is after he's moved. So he's, he's on the move again. Um, and then we have a similar incident, perhaps because, uh, as Abraham said, when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her. So this was the plan all along, uh, right back from the very beginning. Um, we'll pretend you're my sister as you really are. Amazing how we always try to justify our half-truths, isn't it? Um, well, I'm not really telling a mm. lie. Um, uh, there's truth in this. It's just not the whole truth. But And then I think it's interesting that after... Um, uh, this incident with Abraham and Abimelech, uh, the Lord is gracious to Sarah and she conceives. What happens after Abram in Egypt? It's the chapter we, we dwelt heavily on, um, chapter 13, which is the division of the land, isn't it, with Lot? It is, yes. I, I don't know. I'm not seeing any real parallels. Well, there. not directly, but, I mean, there's, there's reasonably, there's a lot of 
thought that the reason that Lot comes with Abraham out of Ur is because Abraham thinks Lot is his heir. So there is the first time he sends an heir away and the second time he has one born to him. Yeah, so. okay. So there's mm. that, that comparison. And interesting that the other, other one of the other major differences in terms of the context is that uh, in Egypt, Abram is Abram. Uh, when he's uh, with Abimelech, uh, he is Abraham. Uh, so he's moved in terms of his name. Mm. God's renamed um, them both. Yeah, these these stories in my memory have always been cast as an example of Abraham being um, untrusting, not, uh, not really being brave. It's his weaker moments. Or is he just being pragmatic? Well, I think he's certainly being pragmatic. Yeah, well, I mean, so he's worried about walking among a godless people. And uh, there seems to be uh, some justification for this. Abimelech, God intercedes for Abimelech, but not for Pharaoh. Mm. Presumably, presumably, Pharaoh was less attuned to, to God and... And God wasn't wasn't able to warn him. Is that is that the inference? Yeah, we don't know whether God sought to warn Pharaoh, and Pharaoh didn't hear it. Well, it's there's a it's there's an, a, a very interesting parallel. Of course, is that they go down to Egypt because there's a famine, which of course has later parallels in the story of Joseph and his brothers and how the Israelites end up in Egypt. Um, but the thing that I find interesting is that it's pharaoh's house is afflicted by mighty plagues and of course abraham's descendants all go and get stuck in egypt because in the first place because of a famine and then there are a bunch of plagues so there there's some really interesting parallels with the story mm. the exodus to that story mm. but um another thing that's interesting about this story in chapter 12 is that in the rabbinic tradition um there's a there's an extra bit to this story which is that hagar who later on we are introduced to in about two, three chapters as the servant of Sarai. And she's called Hagar the Egyptian. And the mm. rabbinic, one of the rabbinic traditions is that she is a daughter of Pharaoh or a daughter of the house of Pharaoh. And she sees the plagues and says, better to be a servant in the tents of Abraham to be a daughter of or to be a member of the house in the palace of the of, of the pharaoh, because look how strong God is. Um, mm. So it's it is an interesting. It's almost like a miniature Exodus, you know, three to well, ten. The the, the other uh, another correspondence there is that uh, Abram uh, left with a large degree of wealth, um, and mm. in the Exodus, the Egyptians gave. Um, uh, the Israelites, uh, you know, lots of wealth yes. when they left. I've... And it was... Go on. Uh, I was going to say, God God uses the phrase, and in this way you will plunder the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. uh... So it must have been a considerable amount of, of wealth. It happens in both stories, Ken, in, the, in both of these. After Abimelech, Abraham gets a fair bit of wealth as well. Uh, yes, except that they're required at different times, it seems to me, um, because uh, Abraham's wealth in Egypt is acquired while Sarai is uh, Pharaoh's wife uh, and he gets treated well for her sake mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, and then leaves with 
interesting uh, the detail um, sheep and cattle male and female donkeys men servants and maid servants and camels uh, so you've got these lovely sort of duels and then the singular camels um, but and he doesn't get quite as much from Abimelech in the sense that he doesn't get um, uh, what's left out in Abimelech um, uh, uh, he gets uh, sheep and cattle male and female slaves so he misses out on the male and female donkeys and uh, he misses out on the camels uh, from but he Abimelech. gets silver but he gets some silver as instead well no he doesn't get it Sarah gets it it's expressly given to Sarah. It's almost like he gives her a dowry. Yeah. And it's interesting because he doesn't say, I'm giving this to you because um, uh, of your husband, Abraham. He says, I'm giving it to you because of your brother, <laughs> you know, Abraham. Rub the point uh, in a bit harder. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I'm just going to dig the knife here. Yeah. See, 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 see. <laughs> Something that I found interesting is that Abraham, Abram's explanation of it to pharaoh you know he says pharaoh says to abram what is this you have done to me why did you not tell me that she was your wife why did you say she was my sister now now here is your wife take her and go abraham abram doesn't say anything back he doesn't have an excuse he doesn't have this big explanation that he pulls out later he gets sent off but the, I think I find it really fascinating as, as you pointed out God doesn't talk to Pharaoh there's there's the plagues instead but then we get over to ex, uh, Genesis 20 and Abimelech has this big conversation with God and God tells him he's blameless has a blameless heart and clean hands um, and then he calls Abraham in the same thing why did you tell me this why did you tell me she was your sister and not your wife the same things that Pharaoh says but Abraham's excuse I knew I was coming to a place yeah surely there is no fear of God in this place which mm. there's a bit of irony there because God has just come and spoken to Abimelech and Abimelech yeah. has displayed fear of well, God there's 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 a couple of observations to make about that um uh, the first is that Abraham, uh, Abram in Egypt had the same motivations. So he expresses this, he, he's, or the same motivations are attributed to him, although he doesn't tell Pharaoh that they were his motivations. But he, no, he, say, yeah, he says, you're beautiful, they'll kill me. Yeah, well, which is, which is essentially the same. Mm. Uh, it's, but as it's your beautiful, they'll 11. kill me, they don't love yeah. God. Like it's the extra the, bit that I'm... I'm ah, it's the extra bit that you want. The... And, and that's the extra bit that's really important. Yeah. Because uh, how much do we make assumptions about people's motivations and about their ability to interact with God? And and this is this is something that... I didn't realise that this was going to be relevant, but I've been reading Leslie Newbig and the Gospel in a Pluralist Society recently, and I think it'll be helpful just to read this bit. To give it a little bit of context, he's talking about how we uh, relate to um, people outside the church, people of other religions or of no religion at all, in light of the... And, and there are two ways that we can respond, um, he says... Uh, one, we can opt for a universalism, if you like, um, because and place the emphasis on the uh, uh, the 
God's omnipotence and grace, um, or we can uh, move to uh, a position of uh, requiring that God's grace can only act in the way it acted on me. Um, and uh, he points out that in either situation, you can't have any dialogue. In the first, because it's not important. And then the second, because it's not important. The first, it's not important because you're not dealing with anything of significance. And the second, it's not important because you don't need dialogue, you need rescue. Um, uh, uh, he, he then talks about, well, how do we live faithfully? And he says, the problem that we mostly have is that we ask the wrong question. And he says, the question that we ask in how, who can, is who can be saved? And we, and we frame that question in terms of what happens to a non-Christian after they die. And he says this, and I, I think this just ties in so well with this. I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. Um, he says that it's the wrong question, first and simply, because it is a question to which God alone has the right to give the answer. I confess that I'm astounded at the arrogance of theologians who seem to think that we are authorised in our capacity as Christians to inform the rest of the world about who is to be vindicated and who is to be condemned in the last judgment. Um, I find this way of thinking among Christians astonishing in view of the emphatic warnings of Jesus against these kind of judgments which claim to preempt the final judgment of God. Nothing could be more remote from the whole thrust of Jesus' teaching than the idea that we are in a position to know in advance the final judgment of God. He then refers to um, the most developed parable of the last judgment being the parable of the sheep and goats, um, and uh, refers to the fact that the last day will be a day of surprises, of reversals, uh, of astonishment. And says, surely theologians at least should know that the judge on the last day is God and no one else. Um, and and I, uh, it strikes me uh, that Abraham fell into that very error in uh, Genesis chapter 20. Yeah. I've just been wondering... Um, as we read these stories in a slightly different direction, it doesn't lead anywhere particularly useful. But is it possible that Abraham just didn't like Sarah that much? Because <laughs> he he doesn't he doesn't seem to object too much to um, her being taken away by rich people, if provided he can benefit materially from it. He doesn't object too much to having his heir through Hagar than Sarah. Um, is 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 there some element to which God has to instruct him to say, no, actually, it's definitely going to be Sarah? Oh, mm. it is, there's, I think it's pretty clear from the narratives that Abraham believes the promise that he will have a son, but it, but is absolutely not confident that the son is going to come through Sarah. Because mm. and and to be fair, God doesn't include Sarah in His promise. He doesn't say to Abraham, "Your wife, Sarah." will have a child until, yeah. much later, until just before the Abimelech story because it happens just before Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the, the three visitors come and they, they make the comment, when I come in a year's time, your wife will have a son. And she laughs when she hears it. Yeah, well, see, that makes it even more amazing, doesn't it? Because if Abraham then expects yeah. his son to come through Sarah, the sec- why by the, would yeah, he let exactly. Abimelech... Yeah, so the se- the second really time he he knows, and this is again I think the thing that's both of these stories happen sort of around the time of the giving of the promise that I'm you know I'm the Lord I'm going to go with you I'm going to protect you I'm going to give you a home I'm going to make you a place I'm going to give you a future and I'm going to give you children, and both times 
I think this is why it gets treated as a story of Abraham not trusting God, is that both time, both both incidences are preceded by either the giving of or the reiteration of the covenant promises. Mm. Now, hang on. I think I think that point's very good, Clancy. I'm about to go down another rabbit hole. Um, is this not the point of this, this podcast? Just... <laughs> to go yeah, down lots yeah. of rabbit holes. <laughs> rabbit, rabbit or have I misunderstood the we'll assignment? <laughs> yeah. So hang on. So the timing is that Sarah has already said, I'm old, I'm worn out, mm-hmm. how can I have mm-hmm. kids? And she's laughed at the messenger. Mm-hmm. And then within 12 months, she is pregnant with a mm-hmm. child. And the Abimelech story happens in the middle. Mm-hmm. So Abimelech is poaching this old woman to be his wife. Mm-hmm. What? What's? I can understand not, early in the not story. Not just pregnant. When I return she... in a year, your wife will have a son. So it's not like a year later a she's pregnant. Yeah, no, yeah. it's like within three months yeah. she's going to be pregnant. It just seems the timing here is a bit odd, and I'm not sure what Abimelech was after. Um, well, because in in Egypt, fair enough. Sarah's a famed beauty, yeah. but at this point, is it is it a power? Is it is he trying to intermarry into a powerful? Or the other way around. You know, I mean, you seal, it, you do in the ancient world, seal treaties with intermarriage, like um, uh, dynastics marriage is not the word I'm looking for, like a a, mar- yeah. a treaty marriage, because you know if you've, it's yeah. it's not, I mean, it's not quite a hostage situation, but if you have the sister of someone or the daughter of someone living in your house, what can they do yes. to you? You know, it's a the the whole concept of family honor is all related to that. So I think, and there's and there's the suggestion that that uh, you your children will be mutual relations. Yes, exactly. Um, so, but I I, I yeah. know it it seems sort of what what can Abraham be thinking? I mean, does he Sarah is the one that gets sort of called out by the angel for laughing at this idea? But Abraham obviously also thinks it's ridiculous because what's going to happen when Sarah pops out a baby? She's really old, and she suddenly has this baby in the house of Abimelech. Like it's, it is, it's very strange. Is, is that also, is this also why the story stresses that Abimelech didn't sleep with Sarah because uh, yes, uh, that that you wouldn't want any uncertainty over who Isaac's father yes, was. I think that's that's reasonably sensible to 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 have that there. And to take it back to Egypt, um, it seems that the same could not be said for Pharaoh. Um, he expressly says, now, I don't know whether in an Egyptian pharaoh taking somebody as their wife involves you know, sexual relations with them, um, but uh, maybe, he, because he said, so I took her to be my wife. Uh, mm. uh, so it's, it, it seems to me that's another distinction in the stories. Abimelech didn't end up taking her as his wife, but pharaoh certainly had, and it would have seemed for some time because uh, uh, it was enough time for Abram to get well-treated and acquire sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and men servants and maidservants and camels. Um, uh, so it seems that for some time Sarah lived as Pharaoh's wife, perhaps not the only wife, but as, as, as Pharaoh's wife. And um, interestingly enough, she didn't have any children to Pharaoh. Um, perhaps that was one of the reasons why Abram and... Abraham and Sarah uh, were quite confident that uh, uh, that they wouldn't be having any children either. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just thinking as you said that, you know, you said earlier that, um, Cam, that 
maybe Abraham just doesn't like Sarah. Well, I'm, I'm going to state it another way and perhaps overstate it to make the point. Abraham does a consistently rubbish job of protecting the women in his household. He is absolutely yeah. hopeless at it. He lies about his wife twice to two different men, sends her off to be a wife in Pharaoh's house, gets found out. And what could have happened? I mean, that's, that, that find out moment is super risky. His fear, it, discovering, oh, it actually is his wife, well then, let's kill Abraham and keep her anyway, or let's kill both yeah. of them because they've tricked us. Like So he puts her in huge peril. Then he impregnates impregnates Hagar, Hagar, condones his wife abusing her. She runs off. Yeah. Then the second time when after Ishmael is born, Sarah says, send her away. He gives her basically nothing, provisions. She runs off. Both she and Ishmael nearly die. And then again, he does the same thing to Sarah, sending her off to someone's house and lying about it. Like he's just absolutely at no point in the narrative does Abraham look after or protect the people that he's supposed to. And what's interesting about that is that Abraham doesn't look after Sarah, but God sends plagues, which means that Sarah is protected. Abraham doesn't look after Hagar the first time, but God appears to Hagar and intervenes and says, I have seen what is happening. Then the second time God rescues her, God gives her, and both times God promises a future to her. And again, with the second Sarah sister wife story, God appears to Abimelech and says, now stay away from this woman. So in all the times, all the, in those four stories, Abraham consistently fails, just doesn't, just cannot be bothered. And God intervenes every single time. Well, indeed, not only can't be bothered, it's a story of exploitation. Absolutely. Um, because it's, I will do this so that we will do this so that I will be well treated. Yes, um, yes, explicitly uh, so. Uh, so yeah, mm. it's that, and yet, and yet, here is the interesting thing. Particularly, uh, I mean, uh, in the in the chapter twelve story in Egypt, Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Um, uh, one wonders why Pharaoh did that. What, what, I mean, okay, he's achieved what he wants now. It, it, it doesn't seem that anything that Abram has done at that point has led to the reversal of the affliction of the diseases that Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's household experienced. So why not just the reversals occurred? Well, we'll get rid of at least him uh, and send her on her way, or why does he get saved? Um, but even more astonishingly, why is it that the one of whom Abimelech, I think, quite justly says, you have done things to me that should not be done, um, why is it that the one who has done those wrong things is the one that has to pray for him and that whose prayer is the one that is, uh, uh, th- that is answered? Uh, it's when Abraham prayed yeah. to God. Yeah, but what God does God say? God doesn't say, now Abraham is a righteous man and because he prays for you in his righteousness, he says, no, he says, Abraham is a prophet. <laughs> so mm. get him to pray for you. It's not Abraham's goodness that wins the day there. No. Oh, that's a distinction a distinction between being a prophet and being good mm. as being not necessarily 
the same thing is is interesting in its own right. Sorry, can you get? No, no. Well, I think I think it is an interesting thing in its own right because um, when we compare that to the uh, to the passage in James, I think it is where it says, you know, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Um, uh, well, yes, that's true, but the prayer of a very unrighteous man also seems to be pretty effective. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps prayer of itself is independent of the. Um, uh, the righteousness of the of the prayer, Clancy. I was thinking of the description you gave um, just earlier about the fact that Abraham doesn't do a good job of protecting the I, women. In his I life. think I said. I think I said he was consistently rubbish. Consistently rubbish. Well, it's, it's made more more remarkable by the efforts he goes over to protect Lot. I know. That's. I mean, it, it's it becomes, and and then also talking about. The Abraham Sarah um, Hagar relationship, where where Abraham allows Sarah to perpetuate abuse, ongoing on it's abuse. abuse. Uh, uh, Sarah doesn't come out looking very well out of that incident. Um, she says, "Sleep with this servant girl; her children will be my children." Um, and then she, the next time she refers to Hagar, is this slave woman. Um, and it's then, no bl- servant then blames girl, it's Abraham a slave for it. Yes, yeah, she does. It's your fault, she says. The, the character in that story that comes out the most squeaky clean is Hagar. That's true. By a long way. And when, when you read, I know in, now what's the book? It's the one, the Rabbi Sachs book about... Um, is it not in God's name? It must. I think it might be not in God's name about religious violence. He he, he recommends uh, people compare the story of of Ishmael dying in the desert or nearly dying in the desert and God intervening to save Ishmael's mm. life to the story of Isaac. It's it yes. Being sacrificed and the story of Ishmael is told so much more emotively. There's there's weeping. There's crying. Um, the story of the Isaac one is really quite. I was going to say dry is not the right word, but it's. The point's not laboured very much about how people felt and what it meant. And, and the story is obviously told in a way to draw our sympathy towards Hagar and Ishmael. Mm, that's true. There are there are even more similarities between the story that make that sort of that emotional distinction even more stark. The, the voice calls to Hagar from the heaven and says, don't be, why are you, why are you crying? Don't be afraid. And... You know, mm. st- stop your crying, don't be afraid. It's the same voice and the same sort of phrasing that says to Abraham, no, don't kill the boy. Um, so they are mm. right. they are quite similar stories. Um, and the thing that's interesting if we're, we're talking about Abraham, Abraham's sort of role in, in Hagar and Sarah's lives is those stories happen quite close together. And... Abraham sends Hagar off. It's true. God has said to Abraham, I will look after her. I will increase um, Ishmael's descendants. Don't worry. I'm going to make a great nation through him too. He'll be fine. But, and Abraham sends them off with one water skin and a tiny bit of food off to the desert. So Mm. Abraham sends, you know, puts minimal supplies on them and sends them off. She, he sends Hagar away. He's told she what he's sure she's not going to die, and the boys, the well, she, he's sure the boy's not going to die. But Sarah, but Hagar doesn't know that. Ishmael doesn't know that. They think they're going to die. Um, and with Sarai, with Sarah at that point, she's silent after 
she sends Hagar away. She disappears from the narrative until we're told that she's died. And But you can sort of, if you think about the fact that Abraham has sent one son away to die, he takes the other son away from his mother off to die. Like this this sort of he... Mm. It, it's another sort of it's it's sort of another element of this story. Um, it is it is pr- troubling. It is problematic. Yeah, I I um I was wondering, you know, when Moses got to within sight of the promised land, and then he couldn't get in, and he says in Deuteronomy, "I didn't get in because of you stubborn people who made me get cross," <laughs> and and. And that's not really what it says in the in what I mean, he he it says in at the original instance that he he wasn't let in because he didn't trust God enough to honor God in front of the people, which is a different thing altogether. Moses never seems fully to come with, to terms with the fact that he's kept out of the promised land, and maybe that's one of the reasons he couldn't get in. Maybe if he had said to God, "Ah, oh, it was just my fault. The people were being difficult, but it was a hundred percent my fault. I should have done better." Maybe God would let him in. I don't know. But there's this there's this picture of someone leading a people towards a promised land and not quite getting there. And, of course, Abraham doesn't see anything like a great nation uh, within his lifetime. It's there's, there's that parallel of God making promises, and he sort of can see it from a distance, but it's a long way away. And maybe some part of that is the fact that, um, you know, Abraham has done his best not his best, maybe, but he's 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 stayed with God, um, but maybe he has his own faults, which mean that more time is needed for the growth of God's people in their understanding of Him. And maybe Abraham, even though he's a huge hero of faith, is not sort of fully qualified yet to 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 lead a great nation, uh, because th- there is there is a sense in all of this in the treatment of. Um, Sarah and um, and Hagar and uh, these two incidences we're looking at. There is some, you know, this it definitely paints a picture of a moral failing. I mean, what about in this whole sort of in these stories that we've looked at and this whole and the whole section that they encompass? What about Abraham is so great? What about him is so? You know, how do we read about what? What do we read about Abraham and go, wow, what an amazing guy? I mean, it is emphasised that he believes that he has faith, except all of these stories suggest that maybe not quite as much as as he could have or should have or we would expect. But what is consistently true is God keeps reiterating the promise to him, almost as if God is saying that the goodness and the grace of God comes from God. And indeed, that's, yeah. the, that's, the, uh, uh, that's the one thing that comes out uh, in both stories, at least insofar as God deals with people other than Abraham. Um, uh, because uh, putting to one side the, the fact that God uh, uh, afflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household uh, because of Sarah, uh, he, he did um, remove them. Um, and uh, in uh, Abimelech, he also uh, reversed 
the uh, um, the curse, if you like, that he'd placed uh, mm. on them. So that what is consistent is that God fixes up the messes that Abraham's created. Well, this is the story, isn't it? If we were to go backwards, and I know we're trying to go forwards through Genesis, but we can't seem to help going backwards. But that's certainly the picture that you get from Genesis 3, isn't it? With the with the fall, in inverted commas, um, that God steps in and, and creates the close. And then with Cain, God steps in to protect Cain. Uh, so God seems to be in the business. And it's, it certainly is suggested that Abraham is... I think he's a hero of faith because he just kept trying. I mean, he got a lot of things wrong. But there wasn't a point where he said, all right, well, I've had enough of dealing with God. I can't understand what he's asking me to do. And and it doesn't appear that everything is going too well. And I don't see a huge, great nation. So I've just had enough. Um, you know, Abraham seems to keep coming back to the table. He's, he's part of the um, a covenant, a very imperfect party to the covenant. But he's he regards himself as part of that and does sort of keep coming back. And there are there are those moments. I think I think one of the things to say is that probably according to the morality of his time, Abraham was being prudent and careful. It's un- unfortunate, and the story is told in a way that suggests his treatment of Sarah is not good, um, and and certainly Hagar. Um, there are of course those hugely countercultural moments, like when Abraham refuses to be paid for rescuing. Lot, um, or when Abraham intervenes to bargain down God on behalf of a city where he doesn't even he has no connection to it, except that his nephew lives there. Except that his nephew nephew lives there, uh, uh, but he could have taken Lot out himself. Well, yes, but he'd have um, to beat the angel of the Lord there. Like he's, yeah, I mean, remember I so. that at this point he still probably thinks Lot's going to inherit everything. Yeah. Sorry to like stick a spanner in your point. Okay, I think I think the point still stands that there are some real countercultural moments where Abraham does does rise above a very imperfect um, moral understanding and his own selfishness and greed. There are times where it shines through, and at those times we recognise Abraham as being the hero of faith. It doesn't mean that we have to like put him on a pedestal in all aspects. And I'm reminded, and I'm looking at the clock, I don't know for how much longer we want to record, but I was reminded when when the Pharisees tried to trick Christ about um, divorce and they're trying to get down to the nitty-gritty, you know, under what circumstances can someone get rid of his wife? And um, Moses said um, this, and apparently the phrase is quite vague, uh, loosely translated as the exposure of a thing whatever that means, but some suggestion of infidelity. Um, you know, is that sufficient? Where's the line drawn? And and Christ steps in and says, hang on, Moses allowed that because your hearts were hard. It's not the ideal. In other words, he's saying to the people who, who are reading the stories of Abraham and the stories of the Exodus and the stories, he's saying you've got this whole religious tradition, but that religious tradition is not perfect in all points. Um, there are huge amounts of compromises in the way that is told and in the way the story unfolds that, quite frankly, God would prefer it wasn't like that all the time. If you want to see the ideal, you have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. You have to go back to the beginning, where there wasn't animosity between the genders, where women were not exploited, um, 
you know, where there, where, where power was not a feature or the, or the uh, disputes over the distribution of power was not a feature of relationships between the two genders. That's, that's part of the con- clearly identified as one of the consequences of sin. And, and, and Christ, I think, makes a fairly clear point about the limits uh, that some of these stories have. We, we should not be afraid to criticise, for instance, the treatment of women in this story. Um, we should remember that the ideal is the, is the Edenic ideal, it reminds me of the advertisement, the road safety advertisement we have here in Tasmania where they show the speed limit and say it's a limit, not a challenge. Um, uh, and I think sometimes we treat uh, these things, particularly if we have a, uh, a legalistic tendency, um, uh, as, well, this is, this is the limit of, uh, of what I can do without crossing the line rather than looking for... Uh, where where can I um, live really well? What I think is interesting is if you go back earlier in Genesis to the story of the flood, why is Noah picked? Noah is picked because God looks around and finds a person who believes in him, someone who still follows him. The description of Noah is a description of sort of faithfulness and righteousness. You get to Abraham and He's not set up that way. He's not introduced that way. He's introduced at the end of the lineage after the Tower of Babel. And there's this guy called Abraham. And with his household, they start traveling. And then God calls him and says, keep, keep coming this way. I'm going to t- I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to give you a land to live in. And it's never, ever said in the story of Abraham, I am going to do this because of anything to do with Abraham it's never to do with Abraham it's always at the instigation of God and no matter how many times Abraham tries to get heirs a different way God keeps reiterating no no I am going to give you a child it is going to happen the way I've promised and it does and Abraham keeps doing these weird side journeys the sister the sister wife stories and the um, you know the the blundering about trying to sort things out in his own, and consistently God keeps saying, I am the Lord your God, I am your shield and strength, I will give you the future that I have promised. And I think because we hear about Abraham, the father of faith, and sometimes I think we confuse what that means, we confuse the father of faith with the father of righteousness and correct behavior. Abraham is not, I don't think, in this, this very extended narrative, chapter after chapter in Genesis, as an idealized picture of what we should aspire to. He is a person who God consistently keeps exercising grace to, keeps offering grace to, no matter what Abraham does. Mm. Look, I like that. The phrase that I was after was, again, a Newbegin phrase, and it was the impossible possibility of salvation Um, and it seems to me that that's exemplified in Abraham and in many many other stories and indeed in my life. Um, We're going to have to leave it there Uh, there's lots of interesting ideas and uh, next week we might move on to the story of Isaac where this whole thing happens again and um, I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about and we might uh, divert from some of the 
uh, male characters. I know, Clancy, when we were speaking earlier, you pointed out that the lesson focus ex- focuses exclusively on the male characters in Genesis. So, so b- perhaps we should give Isaac a miss and focus next week on the story of Rebecca. We hope that you'll join us. And um, please feel free to share this podcast with your friends, if so you wish, or indeed your enemies, um, with anyone who you feel would benefit. And you can send us feed, uh, feedback at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com.